Father, thank you so much uh, that we have a reason to gather, Lord, uh, because you have uh, purchased your church, Lord. You've died in our place so that we can be freed up to worship you. And Lord, because of that, we want to know you. We want to know the God of our salvation. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word, may these words be more than just information, but may they be uh, your words which bring life. You spoke life into your disciples and you continue to do that by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that that would continue this morning, that you would inspire us to walk with you. And Lord, uh, I just uh, confess to you that I have nothing to give other than pointing people to you. And so, Lord, this morning, may my words be honoring and glorifying to you. And may they point each person here uh, to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Well, last week in our reading, we started in, uh, we finished Acts chapter 2. And as we did that, we witnessed the early church in its simplest form. I don't know about you guys, but the life that you and I have and the uh, culture that we live in is complicated. There's always more stuff to be involved in. I just started a new job, and at that job, it seems like every day I think I've got all the details figured out, and then I find out that there's way more. It doesn't get less complicated life. It gets more complicated as we grow and as we mature and as we get older. Um, you know, I'm finding that out. Just with one child, things get way more complicated, right? So in our lives, we don't need something else added to it that complicates things more. And I believe that's why many people, though they know, Lord, they know Jesus and they want to you know, let everyone else know that they know Jesus, they, they, they really don't seek fellowship as much as they probably ought to, because it's one more thing added to the calendar. And that's kind of where I've come from. I, when I was growing up, my mom took me to church, and my dad didn't go. And, and when we went to church, it was like we wanted to get in and out as quick as we could, because if we did that, we got our, we got our church in, but we also can do everything else that we had going on. Well, to me, when I started going to a church where it was simple, and where I wasn't expected to do anything other than show up, I wanted to get involved. And so it was very inspiring to me when I read this passage and I remembered how early the early church was so simple. It wasn't complicated. There wasn't that much going on. It was all centered around four things. Number one, they studied God's word together. That was the, the sole purpose for them gathering. Number two, they just hung out together. They were friends inside and outside of the church. Number three, they broke bread and they took communion together, and they prayed together. These are the four things that the early church was found doing, and it wasn't complicated. It wasn't over-meticulous. It was just simple. They were able to be simple with one another, and they were able to be real with one another. And I think that's the exciting part about having a relationship with Jesus, is that in many ways it's simplified my personal life, and it's made me sincere. It's made me without wax. That's what that word means in the Greek to be without wax. And the idea is that a sculpture artist would take this rock and he would start with this just rough piece of rock and he would start to nail away at it and he would break off pieces. And as he did that, he would form this head or this bust, the shoulders all the way up of this famous person. And many people would pay money to have this bust. And to have a good one was very expensive. And it would take the man who was making it years sometimes to make the meticulous details. But one wrong hit, one wrong chisel mark, and a piece would break off. And of course, he would lose two years of labor. He wouldn't be able to get the money from the work that he did. 
And so because of that, they, they would just take some wax, they would melt it down and put it back in there where the nose piece was or whatever broke off. And then they would sell it as if it were a whole piece without wax. That's what it would say. It was certified. Cine Siri. Well, the problem is, is when you take that thing and you put it in your window so everybody can see it, and the sun beats down on it, what happens to that wax is it heats up, it melts off, and it falls away. So it's not simple. It's not without wax. It, there was something hidden in it. But when we come to know the Lord, we no longer have to hide what's going on in our life. We can be honest with Him, and that hopefully will make us honest with our fellow man. And so that's the inspiring thing about the Lord. He shows us that we don't have to worry about what other people think. We can just be focused on what He thinks, and that will make our other relationships right and simple. So a direct result of their faith in the Lord was that they continued in these four activities. And we can see that these activities had an impact on how they interacted with one another because their fellowship, like I just said, was simple and sincere. And we see that in verses 44 through 45, they were willing, if need be, to do whatever they could do to supply the needs of anybody who had any lack within their local fellowship. And in verse 43, the Bible says that their common mindset was living in the fear of the Lord, meaning that their main goal as a group wasn't to please one another or to meet each other's expectations of one another, but it was to meet the expectation that the Lord had of them. They wanted to live to please the Lord, and because they all individually wanted to please the Lord, it caused them to love one another, to give one another grace, not to expect too much out of one another. And they were praising God. They were sharing meals. They had contentment. How many of you are always content? That's something I struggle with. But they were content in what they had. They were content in who they are as people. And they were real with one another. And that's something that we don't see outside of the church when it's done right. You don't see people being real with one another. You see people putting up a front and acting like they're better than they actually are. And that causes strife. That causes contention. Causes jealousy. But they were praising God in the church as a result of that, had favor among those who were not believers. It was their testimony to the rest of the world. God's changed us. We're not just like everybody else. We're different. We please God and, and we desire to. Now let me ask you, are you known for being simple? And are you known for being sincere? To non-believers, what does your life look like? Is it simple? Are you content? Is all that you do driven by a single focus? Or are you always driven in a million different directions and frustrated because your life is chaotic and overwhelming all the time? I'm guilty of this. Are you living life to serve so many purposes that you can't live simply? If I've just described you, which by the way, I've just described myself, I struggle with this, perhaps you might go back and examine the four things that the early church made their habit, their practice, their discipline. What was it? Studying God's word together, hanging out, breaking bread with one another, taking communion, and praying. This is something that works in the church. This is something that will give you unity in your families. This is something that will give you peace in your individual life. <clears throat> but I'm sure that their lives weren't perfect. Let's not just assume that they were sharing everything and everything was going fine and there was no problems, because there were but it nonetheless looks like their lives were somewhat peaceful. Perhaps it's because their leader, Jesus, 
By the way, his name is the Prince of Peace. And as they did what they did, whatever it was, verse 47 says, the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. It doesn't say that the people added by their own might. It doesn't say that the pastor added to the church those who were being saved. It says because of their conduct, because they continued in faith in the Lord, that Jesus, the Lord, added to the church those daily who were being saved. By making the people at peace with one another and by making their lives simple and purposeful, the Lord attracts people to himself. The distractions of the day are all removed as we just worship Jesus simply for who he is and what he's done. And when we have peace with God, what I want you to notice is then we will have peace in this world, even when this world is not so peaceful, right? Because we know that this world is temporary and we trust that one day, according to Jesus' promise, we will be in his presence and all of this, all of our life will be as though it were only a dream, just a glimpse of time that in comparison with eternity is only as long as the blink of an eye. Think about how long it takes to blink. And that's what, in light of eternity, this life is going to seem like after we pass on. It'll be just a blink, a fraction. So let's start in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, There now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That just means 3 p.m. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. So it seems that these men, though disciples of Christ, and later they'll be known as Christians, we'll see that in this book, they still make a habit of going to the temple to pray. Now, they've been saved, They're Jewish still, though, so they will go to the temple and they'll pray there. They didn't stop going to pray to their God with the Jews, but it seems now that since they know who they're praying to, they want to be with those that are praying to their God. Though many of these in the Jewish temple will not know that Jesus was their Savior that they were looking for. But it says that while they were on their way into the temple, doing something they always did, going to the temple to pray, God um, saw fit to drop someone into their life. While they were on the way to the temple for prayer, they came across a man who had been lame from birth. It says there in verse 2 that he carried, that he was carried to this spot by the gate of the temple every day to beg, to ask for assistance. He needed money. And we see people like this all the time. They need money, or they need a car, or they need a ride to work. When this man saw Peter and John about to go in, he asked them for money. Why did he ask them for money? Because that's what he did. He spent that time sitting there because he couldn't do anything else, couldn't provide for himself. So he asked everybody that came through for money. And it doesn't say, but uh, he can't walk, he can't work, he can't provide for himself. This wasn't something that had happened because of a tragic accident. It was something that had been with him his entire life. He had never known how to walk. He had never been able to work for himself. Now, I've been in this spot before when I've gone to big cities here in the U.S. and when I've gone to small cities or large cities in foreign countries. And uh, people have needs and can be found begging in our own country. They can be found begging 
uh, along the major roads in Farmington where I work. They can be found at the edge of the parking lot in Walmart. But they all have needs. And there are many people that don't go anywhere to find out if they can get their needs fulfilled. But my point is, is that how do we know when to get involved? Because there's people everywhere that have needs. You and I, we have needs, right? Just like everyone else. So how do we know when God desires for us to get involved? How do we know when God doesn't desire for us to get involved? Now you might say to me, well, why wouldn't God want me to be involved? He's a giving God. Well, maybe he's got somebody else he's going to use for that particular person. The hard part is that many of these people, they get rejected so many times that eventually they get used to being ignored. This man had probably spent most of his life asking for alms at the gate called Beautiful. The most religious people in all of Jerusalem, in all of Israel, this nation that had been blessed by God, the most religious of all of them would be going into this temple three times a day, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. They were going to go and pray to their God. Now, their God, described in his word, is gracious, forgiving, rich in love, a healer, a creator, and a father. He came to the temple to seek help, and this is the place that he should come to seek help. This is the place that people should be able to desire to come, knowing that if they have a need, they can come here and have it fulfilled. Now, does that mean that if someone wants a Ferrari, they should come to church and ask for it? I don't know about that. But if they have a true need, not a want, but a need, God is able to supply that need. And sometimes he even sees fit to fulfill what we want, something we may not exactly need. But this man had come to the right place. We don't know if anyone had ever helped him out, but I'm assuming they had because his whole life, someone had been carrying him there every day. I don't think he would have come back if he hadn't received anything. You don't go back fishing to a hole that never produced any fish. You go for a different spot. So, but he still had to come back every day. And there was nowhere for this man to get food stamps. There was no unemployment office for him to go and draw unemployment. And, uh, but this is the way that he could get what he needed. This was his livelihood, his job, you might say. So he's doing what he's always done, and just by, just by coincidence, although in my opinion, based on what I read in Scripture, there's never anything that's according to coincidence or luck. God is in control of all details. And so because of that, I see that Peter and John just so happen to meet this man, and not only do they meet him, but they, they look at him. They don't just pass by and be like, I don't have anything. They, they look at him. They see a man. They see a person there. So in Acts chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, we see that. It says, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive th- something from them. This man is now giving them his full attention, expecting to receive something. He made eye contact with them. Now, I wonder how often people had actually walked by this man and not made eye contact. I've been guilty of this, by the way. You're walking in a Walmart. They're asking for money again. Not necessarily an individual, but they got the little red pots, right? So what do we do? We walk by and we're like, uh, you know, don't make eye contact. I feel guilty. You know, and and we do that. It it happens. I don't know anybody that's never done that. 
I don't know anybody that's ever really talked about it. Maybe I shouldn't be telling you this. I don't but the point is, is that we walk by and we're like, you know, I could give every time I walk by this thing, but am I supposed to? Is this something that really matters that much to me? Well, Peter and John didn't know this guy. I want to point that out. Peter and John had no clue who this guy was. But when they walked by him, something in them stirred and they stopped and they said, look at me. And when he looked, I don't know if they even knew what they were supposed to do. They were just compelled by the Lord to do something. Verse 6 says, Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. His first response is, I don't have anything to give. I don't have any money. Maybe that's you. Maybe sometimes people have needs. You see them along the road and you're like, I I can't help that person. So our first thing is to feel defeated or guilty. Don't do that. Don't you realize that we know the God that can supply everyone's need. We don't have to be the, the source for their blessing. Maybe God would see fit to use someone else. So the first and foremost thing we can always do for someone is realize our poverty. We don't have anything to offer. Even if these guys did have silver or gold, maybe they had a few cents in their pocket, what are they going to do? They're going to hand it to him. He's going to get his daily bread. He'll have to be in the same place the next day begging again, right? Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes God doesn't use us to meet them in their practical need. But what these guys do, first and foremost, is that they can pray for him. Even if they don't have silver and gold, they have Jesus. And it's Christ in us that's the hope that we have to offer every person that you and I come across every day. It's not money. It's not even something to do on Sunday. It's not even maybe, you know, I can mow your lawn because you can't do it for yourself. All those things are good things, and we can bless people with those ways. Sometimes that's all we have. And when we do, we got to realize that God doesn't give us the ability to bless someone just so we can say we were good or so we can point to ourselves. But he always uses how his disciples bless other people as an opportunity to share the hope that we have in Jesus. Don't ever take the glory if God gives you the opportunity to bless someone. I guess that's my point. When he gives you the opportunity to bless someone and they say, hey, you're a really nice guy. It's going to be really tempting to go, yeah, I know. I mean, I've done that. And maybe you are a nice guy. But always realize that if you have anything with which to bless somebody else with, be humble about it. Realize that God's the giver of all good gifts. And if you've been able to give somebody something, give the credit to the Lord. Tell them, hey, I'm not really that nice of a guy. I would have rather kept that five bucks. I mean, be honest with ourselves, right? Who doesn't want to have five extra bucks that's not assigned for anything? Or maybe it was. But my point is, is when they say, and you're a nice guy, go, no, I'm really not. God is good and he's provided for me and it's his anyway. So I'm just passing on to you what he's blessed me with. He's just put it in my hands and I'm letting it go through. And I don't even know why, but he's, he's led me to bless you. He's the one who gave the only lasting gift. Because any gift that you, cannot, you and I can give, if it doesn't point to the gift that is eternal, that's not temporary, then it's just a gift that'll meet a temporary need. So he is the gift, his son. 
Peter and John here had nothing at all to give this man financially, though it was what they were asking for, but what they did have, they gave him. And this is really no new pattern for the disciples. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 7 through 8, Jesus, in the first time that he sent his disciples to go out and preach the gospel, to preach that the kingdom was near and people needed to repent and trust in God, when he sent them out, he said, I want you to go out two by two, sent about 70 people. And when he sent them out, he said, I want you to go out and I don't want you to take any provisions. Don't take two pair of shoes or sandals. Don't take two tunics. Don't take money. Just, I want you to go out and realize that when I send you out to do a mission, I'm going to provide for you. I don't want you to trust in your own resources. I don't want you to trust in your strength. I want you to trust in me that when I send you to do something, I'm going to be the one that's going to supply all your needs. And so he did that. And they, in that instance, learned by the power of God that they could do mighty things. They were able to heal. They were able to cast out demons. And they never had any lack. God always provided food for them, even as they went. Not because they had anything to offer. They already realized that they had nothing to offer this man. They even started by telling him, silver and gold I don't have. But because they knew that their God was able to do abundantly beyond what this man may have even knew to ask for or think of, this man was able to be introduced to Jesus in a very tangible, a perceptive way. And might I say, it was a very uplifting way, right? No? Nobody? I thought it was funny. What I, what I absolutely love about this passage is that it shows us that sometimes God allows us, as his children, as his disciples, to go without. And our first thought is, Lord, why aren't you providing for me? Why aren't you giving me more so I can have a more abundant life? And it seems like to me that his own disciples didn't have any money to give this man. Sometimes God allows us to have a lack, not because he doesn't care, but because he wants us to learn to trust him, because he wants us to to call upon him every day, to be dependent. It's like if we gave our children everything that they ever asked for. Not only would they use it and probably break all their toys, but they also would get to a spot where they'd kind of get used to it. I've always had everything I've ever needed, so they won't appreciate it as much, right? Well, Jesus, sometimes he allows us to go through seasons where we don't have what we think we need, so we'll learn to trust him. Isn't it funny that when we don't have or when we're going through a rough time, all of a sudden, we're talking to God all the time. We're just like, Lord, you know that I have this need. And I've gone through those seasons. You know, in this last season, we had to have our sewer replaced. And we had to, you know, I, I, my job was being switched and I had to get a new job. And I was like, Lord, I was talking to him every morning about those things. And he wants to hear from us. So sometimes he allows those things just so he can hear from us. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Because then we go, wow, it wasn't my mind at all. It was him. It was all him. God touching this man through the disciples is a miracle that gave him glory. The man was healed. He leaped, went into the temple, and he praised the Lord. And because of this miracle, not only was this man blessed which is the first and foremost that we notice, right? But others, because of it, will hear of it and have the opportunity to be introduced to the one who did it, to Jesus. If God ever gives you the opportunity to do this, realize that that's his goal. So Acts chapter 3, verse 11. We're going to read kind of a long section here, but what I want to point out is that 
Had this need not been met in this way, they might not have had this audience gather around because this man had been sitting at the temple for years, his whole life. Many of them probably knew him by first name if they'd ever given anything to him. And so when they saw this man leap up, run around and praise the Lord, they knew something miraculous had happened because it's not like he had just twisted his ankle one day and couldn't walk. This was a man that had never, ever, ever walked. He hadn't even, as a little baby, learned to walk. That's something I noticed this time as I was reading this because we kind of take for granted walking. Something very simple, right? But we have to learn it. It's not something that, you know, the switch just flipped one day and we did it. There's lots of falling involved. There's lots of learning to balance. I'm, I'm excited about that because I want to see our daughter do it. At the same time, I don't want to have to child-proof the house. But it's a, it's a process, and it takes a while. And man, when they get good at it, and they stop falling, we kind of forget that that was a rough spell that they had to go through to get there. This man had never walked. And so for him to be walking means not only did God restore all the ligaments and the joints and the muscles that had never been developed in his legs, but all of a sudden he knew how to walk. It was like a switch of a, a, a switch of a flip, a flip of a switch. It was just on. He was walking. And so we have to notice that as well. So verse 11 says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. He speaks to them boldly once again. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why are you blown away by this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, he says, it wasn't us. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the one that you're worshiping at this point in the temple, he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when Pilate was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One, the Just One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's talking about Barabbas. Do you remember when Jesus was put up to trial? All of a sudden, Barabbas was there. He said, well, a tradition is, is that when, when, you know, on Passover, I always let one prisoner free. I was just watching. Have you guys seen that new movie, Free Birds? No? It's, it just came out. But the, I guess the premise is that this kind of a rabbit trail. But the turkeys, there's these two turkeys, and they want to get rid of Thanksgiving, and they get their hands on a time machine. So they're going to go back to the first Thanksgiving and somehow make it to where Thanksgiving is not about eating turkey anymore. So that's kind of a self-preservation thing. Anyway, it's, it's jacked up, but it was funny. So <laughs> they go back, and the whole premise is they want to get rid of that. I don't even remember what my point was on that. <laughs> I really don't at all. I'll just go back to the passage. I'm sorry. Whew. Lord, forgive me. <laughs> anyway, he was the turkey that was pardoned by the president. That's how it all came to pass. That was my point. He was pardoned. And so Pilate, in the same way, came back to me. Whew, praise the Lord. So <laughs> he was pardoned. So in the same way that we pardon a turkey for whatever at Thanksgiving by presidential tradition, Pilate would pardon one man every year back to the Jews. And so 
Jesus is up for trial and Pilate notices this guy's not really guilty of anything worthy of being put to death. So I'll give them a choice. I'll give them a murderer and I'll give them Jesus. And as they're there, I'll say, hey, who do you want to pardon? You want to pardon Jesus or do you want to pardon Barabbas? And to his surprise, they pardoned a murderer, someone who had murdered people in their own area. Now, if this would happen, it would break news headlines all over the place. Hey, innocent man is put in jail and murderer is set free. News at 11. That would not happen. But what it says there is that you denied the Holy One and the just. You took someone who was righteous and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and said. And then what I love is verse 15. It says, and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. They killed the prince of life. The other word for prince there is the author. You killed the author of life. Now you and I are just, we we don't understand this because God's the author of all life. And he came down to us to pay for our sins, to die in our place. It's not fair. But what did we do to him? We murdered him. We said, you know what? We don't like you. We're going to kill you. That's what we do. That's the best of the best of what we have to offer And God, who is rich in mercy, says in verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, talking about the man who was just healed, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Meaning, he's made made him whole. He's not only healed him, but he's made his body that was once broken, that was once not able to be used. He's made it whole. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, Jesus has thus fulfilled. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. That's a long sentence, right? But the whole point is the crux of his message is that if you want to come to Jesus, realize number one, You're a sinner. That's the bad news. That you are just as guilty of Jesus' death as the Jews, as Pilate and his cronies. You're just as guilty. People always ask, well, who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it those that were around? Was it the Romans? And my answer is always going to be to people that ask me that question. I killed Jesus. It was my sins that put him on the cross. Now, he did it willingly, knowing that he would pay for my sins ahead of time, but it was me that put him up there. And because of that, I need to know, just like these Jewish people need to know, they were guilty of Jesus being on the cross. They rejected him. They asked for the murderer to be freed instead. He says, repent, therefore. Turn around. Be converted. Realize that your sins can be forgiven. And then he quotes, he talks about Moses, verse 22. Because they're Jewish, right? Moses is one of the big ones. He says, For Moses truly said to you, the fa- to, to the fathers, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things and whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So they were all speaking about Jesus and they were telling that he would come and him, if you don't listen to him, it will not go well for you. So verse 25, he says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and he said to Abraham, this is what God promised Abraham. He said, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities, to turn you away from your sin. I've heard people say before, if I come to your church, will you leave me alone and just let me be who I am? Well, yeah, I will. But that doesn't mean that the Lord wants to do that. The Lord's desire is not that we would come and just be with him, but that we would repent of our sins And as a direct result of that, that our life would be blessed by him because then it would be a life that he can bless, be a life that's obedient to him. He transforms us by renewing our minds, by showing us that we need his grace and then freeing us up to worship him and and to serve him in our daily lives. But notice what he's told them though. Though it is your fault and you are guilty of the blood of Jesus and setting free a murderer and murdering him, Despite all that, what God wants to show you is to, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. That's the gospel. Even though you're guilty and that you deserve the death that he did, God sent him to you. And he's telling these Jewish people, he sent him to you first in order to turn you away, every one of you, from your iniquities. <laughs> now, this was not a message that was well-received by everyone. Verse one of chapter four says, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed And the number of the men came to be about 5,000 that received Jesus. So what I want you to notice is that the raising of this lame man and the power that God gave his disciples to heal his body and to make it whole like it had never been before, though it was a miracle from God, brought the disciples trouble and persecution. So if you're praying or you want to know what God's will is for your life, it may not always be for what you feel to be the best for you. Peter's just proclaimed in Jerusalem <clears throat> that Jesus came, was put to death, and was raised for, for the forgiveness of sin. He tells them that the prophets foretold these events and that they were guilty of his death. That's the bad news. But he does not leave them there with the bad news. He then tells them that they did it ignorantly. And this was kind of a new... Uh, thing that I I realized this week that you remember what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. One of the things that he prayed during that time was, 
Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And I've always took that to be kind of more of a, you know, he was just giving them grace. Ah, they probably knew what they were doing, you know. But Jesus prayed that, and then it says here by Paul, or by Peter, they did it ignorantly. They didn't know. They knew that they were killing somebody, and that was no doubt breaking God's law. But they didn't know who they were killing. They didn't realize that this was the one that Scripture was telling them about that would be their Messiah. They didn't, knew, they didn't realize, because they didn't listen, that he was the Savior. He was God in the flesh. So, but he doesn't leave them that day. Despite that, Peter said in verse 26, to you first, God having raised up his servant, came to you to tell you this, that you would be forgiven your sins. In other words, even though you did such atrocities against Jesus, he had sent Jesus to them first to proclaim salvation. But it says there that the Sanhedrin in chapter 4, verse 2, were greatly disturbed that they taught and they preached in Jesus about the resurrection from the dead. And my question for you is, why were they disturbed about this? This is good news. This is freedom from sin. They've been trying this for years. You know how the Jewish people had to be forgiven their sins? They had to take an animal, go to the temple, have it slaughtered, clean it, do all this meticulous work, take out certain parts and burn it, and then have it sacrificed in the blood poured out over the altar. I don't know about you guys, but that's a lot of work. And it's dirty work. It's nasty. I don't even like gutting a deer. I mean, it's, I love eating the meat, but that's a lot of work to get a meal, right? Well, the Lord is telling them all they have to do is trust Jesus now. Trust in His power. Trust in the resurrection. And they're like, they want to get rid of Him. Well, mainly because they had taken so much time to try and kill Jesus to put him to death. They even spent money to do it. They paid somebody to, um, to go against him, to betray him. But now, they realize Jesus is dead, and they're going to go on business as usual. Hey, great. Now that guy's out of our hair, we can go on with our lives. We don't have to deal with this Jesus anymore. They can go on with religion, politics, comfort, power. And these ordinary men then kind of bust all that up. We get to go on to business as usual. Uh, but so-and-so just showed up in the temple and healed the lame man. And now they're preaching about Jesus again. So this guy that we thought we got rid of is all of a sudden a nuisance again. So now what? So by this point in the game, this statement that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive, is like nails on a chalkboard to these people because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. These are the Sadducees. We see the Pharisees giving Jesus a lot of grief. And then after the resurrection, the Sadducees are the one that get a burr in their saddle. They thought they got rid of Jesus. And here comes his disciples. <clears throat> so the leaders of the Sanhedrin try to do the same thing to John and to Peter that they did to Jesus. They took them and locked them up. But what the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees, don't realize is that you can put God's messengers in jail but you cannot stop his message from going out. It was too late. The word of God through Peter's sermon had already been broadcasted to the crowd. They had already heard it, and it had landed on fertile soil. <clears throat> and at that very moment, it was sprouting into plants of salvation. 
And verse 4 says that even though Peter and John were put in custody, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of those who believed came to be about 5,000. With their current strategy, in order to stop the gospel, to stop this talk of Jesus, they would have to kill not one, not the 120 that we saw on the day of Pentecost, not the 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost, not the 5,000, but anybody who would hear all of those people speak, they'd have to put them all in jail. They don't have room for that. They don't have time for that. It's not feasible. The reality for the enemies of Jesus is that you can't arrest everyone. And even if you did, they would testify about Jesus in jail. Put all the Christians in jail. What are they going to do? They're going to preach freedom and forgiveness of sin to people in jail that know they need forgiveness of sin. So even then, it would grow. All we have to do in the same way that these guys did, is let the Lord teach each one of us personally, each day, and as He fills us with His Word, let Him use what He's shown us to testify to others the mighty things that He has done in us personally. He's going to meet with us personally before we'll ever have a message for anyone else. His Word will go forth, and it will do the rest. And concerning those times when men and women are put in jail for doing God's will, And I believe we'll see more of that. Realize what Paul had said to Timothy while he was in prison. Paul was not a man that was unaware that sometimes you go to jail for preaching what is true and good. And he wrote in 2 Timothy, go ahead and turn there as we close. He wrote to his young uh, disciple, Timothy, as he was in jail, something that I find great encouragement in. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, he was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of change, chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, those who will be saved, that they also may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. That's the hope of the resurrection. And if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The work of God in you and I is that we won't deny Jesus. We'll proclaim him every time we get an opportunity, but it will be by his power and at his leading. And maybe we don't always have what we think we should be able to give people. But if nothing else, we can pray for them and we can tell them that even if they don't have all their needs met practically, we can pray for them. And sometimes as we pray for them, God will meet their need through you and I. So, Father, thank you so much that your desire is not to leave us orphans, but your desire is to meet us right in each one of our needs. Lord, I know that in this, even in this group here, that we all have needs. And Lord, I pray that you would be the one to meet each one of those individual needs. But Lord, as you meet them, may they not satisfy us so much that we don't depend on you daily. May you meet our needs to the point where we can praise you, 
but may you also meet our needs so that we don't forget you. Lord, we need you every day. We need you every hour. And Lord, I know that it's your desire to bless us because you've saved our very souls. And so Lord, because you've saved our souls, because you've set us free, help us to see those around us, those surrounding us, those that we see in our own community here that have needs, not as a burden, but help us to see them as an opportunity to possibly have you meet their needs. Lord, thank you that you met our needs and that you continue to do so. Lord, use us to meet the needs of our community. And we pray that just as this happened in this circumstance, that people would be saved because of our testimony of what you've done in our lives and also because of the truth that we are sinners and we need you, not just to go to heaven, but so we can really enjoy this life and the relationship that you've given us.